everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rock and Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck. Today, I am joined by a returning guest, one of our fan favorites. It's Mark Lemke. How's it going, Mark? Uh, I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for inviting me back. And let me say, I was touched by your blog post you wrote several weeks back uh, when I when I quit my blog, The Northumbrian Countdown. You talked a bit about um, our, our our dealings in the past and our collaborations, and uh, that meant a lot to me. So uh, thank you for that. That was my pleasure. I actually wrote that blog in one sentence, if you could imagine. And wow. I've read every word of it. And the thing about Mark is that we got to know each other through his blog many years ago, almost 10 years ago. And it was just absolutely uh, saddening to see him give up the blog. But at the same time, I understood and some things just have to come to an end. But I also wanted to pay tribute to a friend and the work that meant so much to me and helped kind of shape my views on not only the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but also just music in general. And it was an absolute pleasure to do that for you, Mark. Well, thank you, Nick. So I'm excited to talk about Jimmy Buffett with you today. Yeah, this is an episode that has been in the pipe work really since our Peter Paul Mary episode two years ago. I, I asked mm-hmm. Mark, what artist would you like to cover? And you had three artists. Do you remember? So it was Peter Paul Mary. It was Jimmy Buffett. And what was the third one, Mark? And it was Indigo Girls. And yes. we batted that around. And ultimately, we landed on just given how pivotal the Indigo Girls are to the LGBTQ experience in America. Uh, I didn't feel as a straight white guy that comfortable kind of impinging on that particular world. So and and mansplaining the Indigo Girls, essentially. So yeah. Jimmy Buffett seemed like a great uh, second episode to do together. Absolutely. And the Indigo Girls are kind of having a moment right now with Closer to Fine being in the Barbie movie. So and there's like a New York Times piece even that came out this week that's about them. So it's really fascinating to see this resurgence. That's kind of what we do on the podcast. Like we take an artist that the guest really admires or likes, and we kind of break it down, say, why are they important? Not only to me, but why should they be important to you? And it's that infectious energy that just really Mm -hmm. helps listeners want to take a deep dive into that artist, both their life, their career, their legacy. And yeah, they're having a great moment. And I'm so excited to talk about Jimmy Buffett. And the reason why I said, why did we plan this two years ago is because I think the perception is that, oh, we're doing this because he passed away last month. Rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett. We were very saddened Mm -hmm. by his death, of course. I think the entire world, not even the music industry, has mourned his death. Like Even President Biden had a tweet about Jimmy Buffett's death, among other people. We're going to talk about that later. But it's one of those things where... You know, he touched so many lives with his imaginative spirit and his great songwriting. And he created this culture or sect almost that just, you know what I'm trying to say, Mark? It's just, it's, 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 he, he touched so many lives. They, yeah. You know what I mean? It's a subculture that a lot of people are deeply invested in. But at the same time, it's also broad. Um, I mean, he, he is the household name. And most boomers, most people our age know um, three or four of his songs, at least, which is a, a great legacy to leave behind. Yeah. And one of his best selling albums was the compilation album in the 80s, Songs You Know by Heart. And it's true. Yeah. There's so many songs that we take for granted that we kind of know a Jimmy Buffett because I think he gets one of those reputations for just being known for like Margaritaville. Right. Mm-hmm. And like even anyone who even doesn't really follow music knows Margaritaville, but he's so much more than that. And that gimmick sometimes is almost an impediment to his integrity as like a songwriter and as an artist. And exactly. I mean, so- and if you, 
If you look at that album, it, I don't know if it's for every single pressing they've done, but it's songs you know by heart, but with the S at the end of songs kind of in parentheses. <laughs> so song you know by heart, <laughs> but let, let's make it into a greatest hits package. It's multi-time platinum album for, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those artists too, where the greatest hits, because it's that and there's another one that have sold more than even any of his studio albums or his live albums. And he's a prolific artist, like 30. He is. Yeah. And I think you're referring to, and this is fairly unusual among successful music artists of his caliber. And it's his box set back in the day when they would release four CDs or five CDs into a package and include kind of lavish photography and all kind of extras for the fans. And that's what Buffett did. It was called, uh, I know the words, I just don't know the order. There we go. Boats, Beaches, Bars, and Ballads. It's one of the best-selling box sets of all time, and and rightly so. I mean, sometimes a greatest hits album or a box set takes on a life of its own. It's more than the sum of its parts. Like Bob Marley's Legend is a good example of that, uh, where it's more than just a collection of songs and both quadruple B as well as songs you know by heart have achieved that kind of iconic stature as a little mini library or compendium of Buffett. Absolutely. And I I think you put that so well. And I'm just so happy we get to talk about him in depth tonight. And he's an artist I think is so underappreciated. And I think that his death has really given this almost like retrospective look in a way the last month or so. And I'm just really happy to talk to you about him tonight. So Mark, what is your earliest memory of Buffett? My earliest memory of Buffett, I would imagine it would be hearing a couple of his songs on our local Oldies station in the Albany media market. Back then it was Oldies 99.5. And they had a lot of 70s singer-songwriters. You would hear, you know, Don't Pull Your Love and I'd Really Love to See You Tonight and that kind of thing. And But they only had two Buffett songs in rotation, Come Monday and Margaritaville. And uh, for me, everything clicked a few years later when my parents took my brother and I on a, a Caribbean cruise. We were very lucky to be able to do that uh, when I was, I think, 14. And we were on a catamaran with maybe 20 other people just kind of soaking in the sun and sailing around St. John's in the Virgin Islands. And the ship captain and his crew kind of knew what they were doing. They had They had their little mix of two hours worth of Caribbean-themed songs for us to listen to. And when Margaritaville came on, everything kind of clicked. It was just this zen, perfect, Jimmy Buffett-ish moment. Uh, I only regret that I was too young to drink. But I had known of Jimmy Buffett before then. But at that moment, I felt like I knew Jimmy Buffett, if that makes any sense. I'm going to make you laugh, Mark. My earliest memory of Jimmy Buffett is Margaritaville. And I'm going to just tell you straight up, I thought he was a novelty artist for the longest oh, time. Oh, sure. Because I can see it. his only well-known song was really that, like to a mass audience. I mean, he has other songs that are pretty well-known, like Changes in Latitude, mm-hmm. Changes in Attitude, and Come Monday, and Cheeseburger in Paradise. But like some of those songs are seem more humorous, and I sort of thought he was like a comedy artist in a weird way. And then mm-hmm. I never really dug deep into his work because, I mean, my parents did have that Songs You Know by Heart album. I right. think a lot of people do because it's mm-hmm. just, it's like a good compact of a compilation of his works. And I guess as I got older, and I think really talking to you a lot too about Buffett, 
it kind of made me, I would listen to his music and I'd be like, wow, this is not the person I thought he was. It's almost like Randy Newman. I thought that with Randy Newman for the longest time too. And yeah. words, Ebon, because Werewolves of London and short people are kind of, they're so ubiquitous and they're so massively popular that you forget that they have other great songs. Yeah. And they're so idiosyncratic that, right, you, you kind of write them off as novelty hits right. in your mind. And yeah, if your second most famous song is about a cheeseburger, yeah, it, it, it's fair to assume that you might be a novelty artist until you take a, a deeper dive. But I'm so glad I have because I just I, I've been very impressed by his songwriting skills and like the way mm-hmm. he flushes out a story so vividly and so succinctly in like a three minute song. That's the other thing I noticed about Buffett too. We're talk about later is that mm-hmm. his songs are so short too. I, mm-hmm. I I never really thought about that until doing this deep dive for this episode, and I'm just stunned by it. But yeah, that's my first memory of Buffett is just Margaritaville, and I thought he was a novelty artist and. That's just naive Nick, so to speak. Uh, And you mentioned before we recorded, Mark, that you almost saw Jimmy Buffett, but you passed on him, right? Yeah, uh, it was unfortunate. He was on my bucket list and it just didn't happen in this lifetime. Uh, Part of it was Buffett's touring style became very, uh, I don't want to say fussy, but very particular for the last 20 years of his life, where he only wanted to perform in these particular venues and he only did it on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And there were all these criteria, it seemed, that prevented him from just coming and doing a show in uh, Buffalo or, or Rochester or, or somewhere else that I might be at the time. And it never happened. And I thought about, you know, let's let's do a road trip. Let's get in the car and go see Jimmy Buffett. But the other problem was the tickets were so ruinously expensive as well. And I, I get it. If if you're going to do a real show and Jimmy's shows were were spectacles, it wasn't just a guy with a guitar. It was a full-blown multimedia extravaganza. I, I can see the logic, but unfortunately, Jimmy Buffett kind of priced me out. And all these baby boomers whose IRAs were maturing could afford to go. And I was kind of left out of the calculus. You're absolutely right. And I think that's the thing about Buffett is that he had a core audience, like the Parrotheads are huge, and they will pretty much, I mean, I can't imagine him not having a sold out show ever in the last mm-hmm. 40 years, 50 years, like, but you're right, it reminds me so much of the Grateful Dead. And that's why I kept thinking of while I was reading more about him is that it's this cult like figure that these fans are just obsessed with. And I watched a documentary called Parrot Heads and mm-hmm. it's about these fans and it came out in 2017 and these, they will just travel show to show where they said, like one guy said he saw him like 150 times. That's crazy. And he only does a handful of shows per year. I think like mm-hmm. at one point he said like, Oh, I only do 30 to 40 shows a year. And to me, that's just, wow. Like that's dedication. And yeah, yeah. I mean, he used to perform more extensively, but but yeah, the, the touring wound down quite a bit in the last decade or so, for sure. Yeah, I would have loved to see that, too, because that that just has to be a wild experience. So you see all these flashy clothes and colorful outfits and oversized glasses and yeah. lots and lots of alcohol, I'm sure. And probably a lot of recreational drugs, I would imagine. I would imagine so, too. Yes. Yeah. So I, I would not. And that was probably one other reason why I didn't go. Right. I, I was I was afraid of having to drive home in this convoy of parrot heads who had had a little too much to drink. <laughs> too many boat drinks. 
Too many boat drinks, too many margaritas. Yeah. Um, but out of cheeseburgers. Yeah, you need the cheeseburgers to absorb the alcohol, you see. That's so true. it's it's symbiosis, I think. I think you're right, Mark. Yeah, that's that's uh yeah, I wish you we would have seen Buffett. That would have been such a fun experience. Mm-hmm. Let's transition to talk about Buffett's early life and his career that would led him to become a musician. So Buffett was born in Mississippi in 1946. He was born on Christmas Day. I know. How about that? I know, right? I, 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 I'm always fascinated by people who are born on Christmas Day or New Year's Day. I don't know why. Like, it's a weird, mm-hmm. like, thing that I just find fascinating. And he loved sailing as a child. And his parents would often take him on sailing excursions or trips. And mm-hmm. he always liked music. And he always really liked folk music. And later on, rock and roll. Because he grew up in the 60s and he idolized a lot of those famous rock bands like i think one of Mm -hmm. his favorites was jefferson airplane which i thought was fascinating Uh, i didn't know that that is interesting isn't it it's it's always funny when an artist admires someone else but it sounds nothing like them and does not perform Mm -hmm. a single iota of their style (laughs) um and yeah he he just went to college he actually went to a few colleges universities he kind of would flunk out and they would go back and then he would sort of do this tick go from one to another that he eventually graduated. And then he really became a musician because he wanted to meet women. That was his whole, his whole prerogative (laughs) and get drunk. And I think I could do this. So I just, I love (laughs) his, it's not like he was, Oh, like I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I got to perform for, or write (laughs) songs. I just want to get laid and get drunk and live a bohemian lifestyle. I just, I kind of love that. I love that too. And and my my recollection in one of his books, I think it was A Pirate Looks at 50, was he was relating how he just kind of latched onto this plan after a guy at a frat party showed him how to play three chords on the guitar. <laughs> and, and the fellow told him, if you know these three chords, that's really all you need to be a competent musician. And sure as shooting, Jimmy Buffett kind of kept to that. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, like another musician I admire a great deal, Tom Petty, there, there's not a lot of variation in those chords. It's very one, four, five, with a, with a mo- occasional minor thrown in there. Uh, yeah, with, with nothing but a few chords and a guitar and hopes of uh, getting some girls, this amazing story unfolds. Absolutely. And he got his start really in New Orleans, which I think is very fascinating. And also it plays, I think, a huge part in what would become this empire that he would build. Because like Mardi Gras, so so over the top and flamboyant and flashy and Mm -hmm. these like complex characters that he would write about. Like it, it feels oddly appropriate that New Orleans would be where he would hone his skills as a musician early on. And the other thing I find fascinating about his life before he became a musician is that he wrote for Billboard magazine in the late 60s yeah. and early 70s, which, I mean, yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating. Like, did you have thoughts on that, Mark? About I, I do. I mean, rock and roll is littered with untalented, aspiring writers and untalented, aspiring visual artists. And Jimmy Buffett is actually a very capable writer. Yes. Uh, I mean, is he Hemingway? No, he's not. But but if you read something like Tales from Margaritaville or Where is Joe Merchant or A Salty Piece of Land, any of his novels, they're excellent character studies. They do a great job of harnessing a sense of location. There, he, He's 
terrific, as you might guess from his songs, at bringing in all these wacky, eccentric side characters to further the plot. Uh, and, and that's what happens when you live in a place like New Orleans that's highly tolerant of eccentrics and is open to a number of influences and just where weird stuff happens as a matter of course. So, yeah, Buffett is in a lot of ways a reflection of his kind of Gulf Coast, coastal Mississippi and Alabama upbringing and his time in New Orleans and that final piece of the puzzle, his long uh, sojourn in Key West. And you bring all these elements together and and Buffett's a, a reflection of them. We, we're all a product of our geography and, and Buffett more so than any of us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just it's always fascinating when like someone becomes a famous artist or a musician and they were like a writer first. And the only other person I could think of offhand is Christy Hine of the Pretenders. She wrote mm. for, oh, I can't think of the publication offhand, but it was a pretty famous magazine. And she was then she would go on to do the Pretenders and endlessly fascinating. And I, I, I think also because, of course, he would make Key West, Florida, his home in many ways. And, yeah. and and he went on like a trip in the early 70s that kind of changed his life forever. And it's weird because at that time, as I was doing more research, Key West was not really this tourist destination that we kind of know of it today. It was all these eccentric figures that you're thinking of, like crime and whatnot. And it's just endlessly fascinating that he came into this geographical location right before it would become this like mm -hmm. mega tourist destination because it's kind of what florida is today in many ways so yeah and, and that's very true where key west was a place where you stayed to cool your heels for a while it wasn't a place you went on a carnival cruise between Kazumal and the Bahamas. Uh, right. You you didn't you didn't do a forty eight hour trip to Key West. You did a long extended stay there. And there's this whole beautiful tradition of incredibly creative people making their home there. You have Harry Truman having his winter White House, as it were, in Key West, uh, which other presidencies used later on. And most famously of all. Ernest Hemingway, one of Buffett's big literary inspirations, becoming kind of the quintessential wandering, alcoholic, creative genius, hanging out in Key West, talking to these unusual people and getting inspiration for his next novel. Yeah, that he would later, that would define his whole persona and the things that he would do, like open restaurants and a hotel resort and all these like merchandise and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I think what's interesting too is like he started out more as like a country artist too. And yeah. the first two albums, at least, because right before the uh, a white sport coat and a the pink carnation, which is of course a play on the um Marty Robbins song from mm -hmm. from the 50s. And it's he was more like a country artist that I think people kind of forget that about him, that he wasn't always this Key West eccentric, so to speak. That's very true. And there's even a misconception of Buffett as a kind of Caribbean artist. And that's that's a little too yeah. far. Uh, I mean, some of the more garish elements of his concerts might, you know, bring out the steel drums and all that and and so on. But yeah, he started out as a country artist. He was a lot closer to singer-songwriters like Jim Croce or or maybe even someone like Harry Chapin. When I think of Chapin, everyone thinks of Cats in the Cradle, but he also had this song like uh, 
30,000 pounds of bananas, this kind of funny story song. And that's all Buffett's first two albums are. It's, it's things with titles like The Great Filling Station Holdup and The Peanut Butter Conspiracy. So he's kind of coming from that world of singer-songwriters who were moving a bit outside of the 60s milieu of social change to write about simply what they observed and tell stories and make character sketches and move into the the rich world of uh, one's internal life rather than the zeitgeist of social change that had been more common you know earlier in the in, in the 60s yeah absolutely I think that that's all true and I think I kept hearing James Taylor like James Taylor mm-hmm, his mm-hmm. influence like especially on like come Monday like I kept like if you close your eyes you would think that that's almost a J, like a James Taylor song because it just seemed yeah. very identical to that. And I also kept hearing a lot of like Willie Nelson, like influence on, especially his earlier works and yeah. even like Merle Haggard. I know Merle Haggard is name dropped and I forgot which song offhand, but yeah, it's, you could hear like that, like full country, not so much rock and roll. I think that's the other thing is that I always thought he was more of a rock and roll artist, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. actually more country. And I think that that's, kind of fascinating in so many ways. It is. And yeah, that's that's another big set of his inspirations. You have the outlaw country music with Willie Nelson, as you say. I'd also throw Chris Christopherson and Waylon mm-hmm. Jennings into the equation as well. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we think of Buffett kind of as a 70s rock and roller. And sure, he had lots of strong connections to the whole Laurel Canyon scene kind of going on in the early 70s. But at the same time, he has major ties, substantive ties to outlaw country. And uh, as I suspect, we're going to talk about people he influenced later on. Most mm-hmm. of the people he influenced today uh, who are active artists are, are country artists. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. And uh, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have suspected that being the case. But that's that's where his legacy kind of ended up. It, it returned to its origins. It came home. It went full circle. And the only rock band that I could think of, and it's because of visual components of Buffett, is like the Beach Boys. It feels like the Beach Boys and like mm-hmm. that type of how they had like surf music and he had like this like tropical sort of music and party music. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of discounted it. And I'm just thinking it's more about his very fun music, so to speak, more like mm-hmm. And I feel like I kept thinking of the Beach Boys, too, while I was listening to Buffett, just for that sheer, like, it puts a smile on your face, like all those songs. Yeah. And if the Beach Boys are kind of this idyllic version of California, Buffett takes us into something a bit more wistful, you might say, or or regretful. Uh, For all of the reputation his music has for escapism, I mean, nobody really escapes from anything at the end of a Jimmy Buffett song. Very few people are really happy at the end of a Jimmy Buffett song. If you really listen closely, they're stuck in Margaritaville. Um, they're they're going on a bender, and eventually they're going to have to go back to real life and go back to the real world. It's the California dream, but but with consequences in a way. Yeah, I absolutely think that is a geographical distinction. You think mm-hmm. of that, the, the American South or like Florida, or it's definitely like a certain type of uh, thing, like how like you were saying like with Laurel Canyon, how there was invoking at this time, like California and LA. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's kind of doing the same thing. Although I will say, I think Buffett is, he could be very serious too in his songs. Like there's a dark side definitely 
to his music, but it was a lot of yeah. There, there's a lot of seriousness. Yeah, but I think he's also playful and humorous too. He kind of reigns it in and makes it very doesn't take himself too seriously, so to speak. And I think that's a perception sometimes with singer songwriters, like they're very serious, and but he's not always that case. And I think that's where he gets this. His detractors will think like, oh, he's just too gimmicky. But I think if you peel the onion a little, he's actually very mm-hmm. deep and I think very philosophical too. It's it's just like, I find him endlessly fascinated for some reason, Mark. I don't know why. Yeah, it, it's true. And I mean, you could, you could create an entire philosophy or an entire worldview based on the ideas contained in those songs. I mean, I've often said Jimmy Buffett is my favorite philosopher. And it, it comes across beautifully in the music uh, where... Things aren't always going to end well, so you need to just kind of live for today and enjoy yourself and come what may. I mean, there's I'm sure there's a Greek philosopher who said more or less the same thing. And as a someone who's taught world history many times, I'm ashamed to say I can't think of who that is. But uh, but yeah, there is a, a very much philosophical component to all that. I absolutely think so. We talked a little bit about this already, but we'll just kind of briefly talk about his songwriting style. And I think he's a very great storyteller. Yeah. That's, I think, what mm-hmm. a lot of people forget with Buffett, if they just think of him as the guy who wrote Margaritaville or Cheeseburger in Paradise. We talked a little bit about this before, but let's briefly talk about Jimmy Buffett's songwriting style and why he's such a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Part of it is... Buffett's admiration of Mark Twain. Uh, They're both consummate storytellers. Their tongue is firmly planted in their cheek. They love showing us human foibles. And they're both great at coming up with these rich character sketches. Like all all of Twain's work have these oddball characters showing up. And they might get a brief description, but we know exactly who they are. That's kind of what Buffett is. He'll, He'll make a point by using this brilliant kind of economy to create a character and weave the story uh, around that person or two or three people. And I'm trying to think of what some of my favorite examples of that are. Someone like the the, um, the person Buffett sings about in He Went to Paris, or um, one of my favorite songs from his 90s work, La Je Nome, uh, about a, a man who basically commits an act of identity theft against himself. And I could understand the the connection to Mark Twain because like Twain, Buffett had this very sharp style that kind of would like either critique something or get it to the human psyche or these characters. And what's so brilliant about him is that he created this imagination and like these yeah. like figures and these heroes, but these but they're flawed heroes. And that's kind of the heart of I think Mark Twain's best works is that these characters they they're not always the most likable or the most debonair, but they're they're relatable in a weird way. And they always leave a lasting impression on you. They do. And Buffett was very fond of uh, one of Mark Twain's books called Following the Equator, which is uh, an autobiographical take on his journey around the world. And the foreword to the book just contains the phrase, be good and you will be lonesome. And that's kind of the fulcrum of Buffett's songwriting. And in the same way that Twain's 
characters are, as you point out, flawed. Tom Sawyer is not a saint. Huckleberry Finn is not a saint. They're 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 a little rascally. They're they're confidence men. They're going to convince you that whitewashing offense is great fun. And most of the protagonists in a Buffett song are exactly the same way. They they have their foibles. Usually it involves an overfondness of alcohol or fleeing responsibility. But yeah, it's very much an update, a parallel. In the same way that Twain's work revolves around the Mississippi, Buffett's kind of geographical locus is that Gulf of Mexico basin. That's Buffett's skill set. I mean, some artists are blessed with the ability to play blistering guitar solos. Buffett did not have that gift. Some artists are blessed with the ability to play more than four chords. Uh, Buffett was not blessed with that either. But there was a song he wrote called um, Schoolboy Heart, where he compares himself to a kind of Frankenstein's monster cobbled together by, you know, a disparate pieces that come up into a jumbled cohesive whole and he says in the song uh, uh i've got a bartender ear and a novelist's eye and those are his two gifts as a writer as a thinker as a musician he picks up on stuff he listens well he'll talk to that one wino at the end of the bar and try and figure out what makes him tick. That's where Buffett's strength as a thinker, as a human even, kind of come from, that ability to seek people out, to observe, and to listen. Just a really uh, admirable songwriter. And I'm just going to ask you a question, Mark, because this is Mm -hmm. something I find endlessly fascinating about Jimmy Buffett. Bob Dylan said, I would say in the last probably five years or so, he named his sixth favorite songwriters of all time oh in my. an interview. I'm going to ask if you can guess those six. And only one of them is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. Okay. Um, the fact that you're bringing this up makes me think Jimmy Buffett is on the list. Um, maybe yes. Chris Christofferson? No. No. Um, let's see. I'll give you a hint. Most of them are in the 60s or 70s. Really the 70s. Okay. Well, that... That doesn't narrow it down at all, really. I know, that um, really doesn't. Oh, geez. I have no idea, Nick. Who else is on there? So this is fascinating. It's Gordon Lightfoot, Warren oh, Seaman, yeah. John Prine, Guy Clark, and Randy Newman. And of course, wow. Jimmy Buffett. And wow. he really loves He Went to Paris. And mm-hmm. I have the unpopular Death of a Poet. I think I've got Death that. of an Unpopular Poet. Yeah. Yeah, he loves those two songs. He said those are some of the best songs he has ever heard. And it's just fascinating to hear someone who is as revered as a songwriter mm-hmm. as Dylan. And I don't even know, besides the Beatles, I don't think anyone has been covered as much as Dylan yeah. and interpreted. And it's just fascinating that he lists Buffett as one of his favorite songwriters. And like, you, you think to yourself, like, wait, what? Like, what is going on here? And it, it's fascinating because Buffett, because Dylan loves doing all of those character sketches as well, especially in his later work. So it doesn't, it's it's not surprising that a lot of his favorite writers have this kind of sardonic, tongue-in-cheek, or mm-hmm. mischievous take on human nature, which is Buffett, which is Zevon, which is Newman, um, Randy Newman to a great extent. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it's really interesting that he covered Buffett over the years. And there's a notable performance that he did with Joan Baez, uh, Bob Dylan, with A Pirate Turns 40. 
in like oh, the wow. early 80s. I have to say in the video because I was stunned. And I think it was more of an impromptu performance that I don't think the audience there was expecting because you're like, mm-hmm. wait, Dylan and Baez are covered Buffett. Like, wait, what? And it's just it's so fascinating on so many levels. So we talked a little bit about before Buffett's music being called golf and Western. And that's a term that he coined himself to describe his music. And I was just curious to hear your thoughts, Mark, about how genre plays a role in evaluating Buffett's work, because he's kind of has his foot in country and rock and roll. And yeah, it's just, I think the discourse around that is just endlessly fascinating because I don't think he could be pigeonholed into really one genre, but what's your take? Yeah. He's a legitimate figure who transcends genre in a meaningful way. People use that phrase all the time, but for Buffett, it's really true. In Mm -hmm. that you hear him on classic rock or oldies, and yet his descendants, the people who adopted him and the people he adopted are all in the country world. And it's the dominant form of music, really, in all uh, all the places, really, that were important to him in, in terms of being coastal Mississippi, coastal Alabama, Key West. So, yeah, Buffett has been a meaningful bridge in that way, in the same way that we looked at how Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton served as bridges when they got inducted into the Hall of Fame between the rock and roll world and the country world. Buffett's a different kind of bridge. He was sort of a a rocker who got engulfed into that in a way more than a country artist who a lot of rockers look up to. Uh, Buffett is kind of inversely a rocker who country artists look up to. Yeah. And I kept thinking too about Buffett is that he's also, the more I hear of his music, especially the album tracks, I kept hearing the folk influences on his work. And you could easily think that you could hear this on any, the the songs themselves and the delivery, especially his 70s output. I felt like Mm -hmm. I I, I just readily heard that. And also the other subgenre that I thought of was what's considered quote unquote easy listening or adult contemporary it kind of Mm -hmm. feels like he would fit right in at home in that and i just think that the gulf and western such an appropriate term for his music because it almost Mm -hmm. defies classification like he's such a iconoclast musician that it's almost impossible to just say that he's this or that i think that's the tendency also a lazy tendency just to say like oh he's just one genre he kind of invented his own genre because it's tropical rock or what they call trop rock which is i think like its own genre now like a recognized subculture and genre it's just i think it's just endlessly fascinating with him because i feel like he kind of defied that i think that's what makes him unique and also what i think his detractors or people that are like screw jimmy buffett is that there's no one quite like him either i mean there's like people who would be influenced by him but no one before him kind of mix this this folk country rock hybrid and then threw in some also later on some of his music while like tropical or caribbean or even calypso kind of music into mm-hmm. the mix and i think people don't like when you're that unique sometimes it's true and and that's what makes it all the more remarkable because i don't think buffett intended to do anything like that it's right. more like he loves these places so much and he finds its people so fascinating it, almost by osmosis, yeah. his songs take on the geographical character of wherever he's writing this and wherever the people he's writing about happen to hail from. Yeah, and I can't think of too many musicians where they coin their own genre and they're 
the fact that he was able to to do that and defy genre expectations and still be one of the most successful artists of the last half century mm-hmm. is a testament to his talents as uh, a musician, in my opinion. Yeah, and isn't that something? Because his best-selling albums, just studio albums, not greatest hits stuff, are from the 2000s. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, once you have the the Buffett renaissance following its five o'clock somewhere, his stuff was consistently hitting the top five, top 10. And Buffett didn't really chart all that well in his 70s heyday. If you go back to all those billboard books, uh, Mm -hmm. Margaritaville might have been a top 10 hit. And that's the thing, right? I mean, um, the guy who did that stupid Convoy song had more chart success than Jimmy Buffett in the 70s. It's ridiculous. And yet he was able to outlast all of his contemporaries as a top-selling touring artist, as a collaborator, and he he just kept on going and and reinventing himself and and found in the 80s when a lot of his contemporaries were floundering who he was, who his fans were, what he stood for. Um, And it was, I mean, Buffett's genius, if you want to use that term, is almost not just storytelling genius, but marketing genius. He knew who he was and he knew what his people wanted. That is absolutely true because he built this empire based on his music and Mm -hmm. it became a billion dollar empire. And let's just talk about the business adventures of Jimmy Buffett. He would produce a Broadway musical and write a Broadway musical about his music. And that was pretty successful. He wrote memoirs. He has a Mm -hmm. restaurant. He has an alcohol line. He has all this memorabilia and swag and his fans eat it up. And it's just amazing to think how business savvy he is. And I think that he gets the last laugh in that because, yeah, he you might think he makes a silly Caribbean music or trop rock music, but he's a billionaire, too. He is the second most financially lucrative Buffett in uh, America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. So. Yeah, and it's just so multifaceted because you have the alcohol, as you say. He was doing, what was it, uh, old age homes towards the end of his life or mm-hmm. retirement communities based on his songs. Even something silly like like Mar- Margaritaville brand coconut shrimp. I mean, he's he's selling escapism. He's selling the allure of the tropics. He's selling you this brief reprieve from the nine-to-five grind in your workaday life. I mean... God, if you're if you're a dental hygienist in Toledo, by God, you've earned your margarita and your your coconut shrimp at the end of the day. And that's kind of who Buffett knew needed his music and needed the various themes that that they stood for. And he was able to leverage it into uh, we, we would use a term almost monetize it today into successful merchandising and branding in a way that I don't see a lot of parallels in the rock and roll world. I I think that his business ventures are also fascinating. Like, did you know he had his own video game or mobile app game that he had? I did not know that. Oh my God. It's called Margaritaville like, Online. And I have to say this to you. It's basically, <laughs> I'm trying to think, an everyday uh, escape to like this paradise, so to speak. And it's based on the works of Buffett and the lifestyle that 
he would uh, talk about in his music. And I just, I kind of wish, I, I, I don't even know if this game still exists, but if I research for it, I was, what is this? And like, I need to just play it just to see what the hell a Jimmy Buffett mobile app game or video game would even okay. remotely entail. Because when you said that, I envisioned something like Tapper. Are you familiar with that video yes. game? Yeah, with the, with the bar and you, yeah, we're, we're, we're like, Essentially, it's a bartender trying to throw margaritas to the right people in the bar or something like that. But uh, but apparently it's more involved than that. Yeah, it's kind of like The Sims almost, like from what I'm reading. I love this quote that he said in The New Yorker about his, his career. This is last year before he passed. He said, who knew people wanted to live in Margaritaville? I thought for a while it was just a myth. It built onto the idea and this thing that just took on a life of its own. You know, he's working with Outback Steakhouses on burgers and margaritas. The dude's just everywhere. And it's just, you know, what you're saying, like, it's this idea of him being like the life of the party or this idea of escapism. No, that's exactly it. And right. I I mean, the Parrot Heads became one of the big fan bases in popular music. I mean, can you think of a fan base more extensive and dedicated than the Parrot Heads? We can think of a few. There's Deadheads and there's Swifties and there's... There's the Kiss Army, there's Juggalos. But after that, it's kind of slim pickings. Absolutely. And I think also with Parrot Heads, it's not Parrot Heads, but like I think Buffett, he's also he's selling you on this idea of like slackers, these mm-hmm. people that sort of just they're existing just to exist, kind of, and mm-hmm. like things happen to them. But I think that's part of his brand and like his aura is that he's sort of just uh, having these characters that lead these lives that either they wish they had or I don't know. It's just survival in a world that it's just you just want to relax. <laughs> I don't know. It's not like, a it's not a solution, right? I mean, margaritas right. will not solve your problems in the long run. They may create a few new problems, if anything. Um, but as the uh, the great economist uh, John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. So <laughs> there is this certain sense that life is short, life is fleeting. These problems will come back to us, but we can have this moment. We can have this escape and our our lives may still suck tomorrow, but we can suck the marrow out of life in the here and now. And that I think is what's so appealing. Uh, Now, Nick, have I have I told you my unified theory of the 1970s yet? No, tell me. Okay, so this ties into Buffett. My unified theory of the 1970s is that the decade as a whole is all about escapism. Think yes. of it as a long hangover from the 1960s. Everything is about escape to some degree. The movies, Star Wars, uh, favor uh, this fantasy escape-like environment. The, the literature is full of absolute nonsense, like Jonathan Livingston Seagull, that, that's kind of trying to rise above one's conscience. Um, and in a way, it's Americans making sense of, or at least baby boomers, making sense of limits for the first time in the 1970s. The 70s is when that booming post-war economy comes crashing to a halt. It's when trust in your leaders, the market system, uh, your religious figureheads, uh, the military, all these major institutions fall flat on their faces in the 1970s. Right. And on top of that, America is kind of burnt out from all the social turmoil in the 60s. So rather than focusing on problems without, a lot of people focus on the within. It's a great time for soul searching, like self-help becomes a thing in the 1970s. And other people just kind of 
tune out, whether it's nostalgia. As far as I can tell, Nick, people in the 70s just wished it were the 1950s again, right? You've got Greece, you've got American graffiti, you've got happy days. It's just this long period of, oh God, I wish we had Eisenhower and Truman again. Uh, and 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 in a way, Buffett is one other facet of that escapism. The economy yeah. sucks. Your life is not going to be as good as your parents. You're drowning in debt. Uh, your girlfriend just left you. Buffett's music kind of taps into that particular need that a lot of people were feeling. We can call it escapism, and it is. But I think the more larger and interesting question is, why is escapism necessary? Why is escapism popular? And it's no mistake that once things really started going to hell in the 70s, Jimmy Buffett took off. Yeah, that's that's kind of fascinating because really, if you think about it, it sort of was 77, 78 that he really took off, really, in terms of becoming mm -hmm. more of like a, quote unquote, more popular artist or a leaded mm -hmm. artist. He was around, of course, throughout the 70s, but it's no coincidence that something like Margaritaville. Yeah, once you have to wait in line for gasoline and can only get on odd number of days, that's when Jimmy Buffett takes off. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Oh, I don't think so either. I think what you're saying, Mark, is we should write a book like a historic, like a historiographic kind of Jimmy Buffett as a why he became this cult of personality figure. It like it is post like he's the baby game. boomer avatar. I mean, he, yes. he's he's what channels a lot of their disappointment. He becomes the kind of person that baby boomers aspire to be. Not that he doesn't have younger and older fans, but everyone just wants to get on a boat, have a pitcher of cold drinks, go sailing and escape the rat race. It's a particular form of coping with your problems that's unique to those who were born maybe in those the, the 10, 15 years after World War II. And look, I'm going to tell you something else, too. And I didn't put this in the questions or anything, but it's endlessly mm -hmm. fascinating to me that when Jimmy Carter was running for president, of course, you would see Greg Allman, you would see Paul Simon, you would see Willie mm -hmm. Nelson. Jimmy Buffett was also one of the people that campaigned for Carter to be in the White House. And it, it, it's just it, it there's it's not a, too far off to think that he kind of would have his hand into a political sphere like that. And it's so fascinating to me. And I really want to watch that documentary that's on one of the streaming channels about Jimmy rock Carter, and rock and roll president. Yes, that's it. And I really want to see it because I think that there's something to that because mm -hmm. especially we talked about this with Peter Paul Mary, but like rock and roll was starting to become more politically, socially conscious at the tail of the sixties. And then really in the seventies is when you'd see them start going to like environmentalism and use political, social turmoils and crises that would help get into their music. And Buffett was an artist that campaigned for Carter and considered Carter a friend. And likewise, the, the, the film was mutual. Jimmy Carter, Presidential Library, they post a picture of Buffett in jeans and a polo shirt, and he's talking to Mondale. And yeah. it's just this beautiful picture because it's Buffett right before Margaritaville, really, or right mm -hmm. like when Margaritaville happened. And his visits to the White House, and he's always constantly going to the White House, too. That's a whole nother topic. But I appreciate your setting the scene because that was a great photo of Jimmy Buffett in Gulf Coast casual with Walter Mondale in his suit. He may not know who Jimmy Buffett even is uh, meeting together in the White House. Just it's just one, as someone who loves 60s and 70s politics, it was just this great moment where like my seventh favorite musician and my maybe 25th favorite senator of all time, just kind of come together. And yeah, that is fascinating because Carter and Buffett are both fundamentally reconstructed Southerners 
who both became public figures after the civil rights movement, which in some way changed what it meant to be a white public figure in the South in intractable ways. And it, it also reminds me of more frivolously of a funny story where uh, Jimmy Buffett's cell phone was left behind in a restaurant sometime maybe 20 years ago. The busboy in the restaurant just found it and kept it for a week and went through all of Jimmy Buffett's contacts. And Bill Gates's private phone number was in there and Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter's phone number was on there. And, you know, Al Gore, all these uh, Harrison Ford, all these movie stars. And the kid just kept the phone for a week, kind of crank calling Harrison Ford and Bill Clinton uh, before the Secret Service came by and confiscated his phone and gave it back to Jimmy Buffett. He didn't say son of a son of a son of a son of a sailor. He said son of a, don't get in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's a lovely story. We talked a little bit about the Parrotheads before, Mark, but I got to just talk about them a little bit more in depth because I find Mm -hmm. Parrotheads so fascinating. I could not stop thinking about them for this episode, honestly, because (laughs) I just think that this is this cult of personality figure that Jimmy Buffett is. And these these, like these fans are just so obsessed with him. And you were saying before, like the Grateful Dead and Fish and Taylor Swift and Beyonce and these artists who almost transcend some people are just that into an artist. And I've just wanted to ask about the your thoughts on like the origins of the parrot head term and how Buffett himself kind of embraced them and would kind of build his empire almost on the backs of these fans. Yeah, uh, because it gives you a guaranteed audience. Uh, my understanding of the term, and this may be apocryphal, is that it came from Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles, of all people. And he and Glenn Frey were probably the two Eagles who were closest to Buffett. And Schmidt said something along the lines of, these fans of yours, Jimmy, they're insane. They're like deadheads with parrots. And that's where the term parrothead came from. And it is fascinating because it's such a huge part of their persona. And I'd be curious to know how many of them for whom Buffett fandom is this release from drudgery and the grind we go through every day and an unfulfilling job and and all these other things. And those for whom they're already retired, (laughs) they're not doing much, they're, you know, uh, for whom it's just part of a larger lifestyle. It's not a break from anything. It's not an escape from anything. It's part and parcel of how they live. I'd love for a sociologist to kind of break that down a little bit. And it might be hard to do now because with Buffett gone, Buffett concerts are are also gone. Maybe we'll get, you know, the coral reefers to go on tour or something, but it, it won't be the same. So that particular moment of uh sociological research may be drawing to a close. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think there has to be now I kind of want to look, but I feel like there has to be scholarship on that. There there mm-hmm. has to be. There's just it's too much of a cultural phenomenon to not warrant uh critical curiosity, I don't I would I would imagine. But if not, we're inspiring someone to do that. So if you do Uh inspiration for this podcast, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if anyone from the American Sociological Society is listening or something like that, we we could use some research here. So please get a grant, get IRB approval and go to it. Absolutely. And uh, when I watched the Parrothead documentary talked about earlier, how dedicated that these fans are. And when I watched the movie, you see... Not only in the U.S., and you see it from all over. It's not even just like Florida or just New Orleans. It's Long Island. It's Detroit. It's Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. 
it's LA, it's Las Vegas, it's everywhere, these fans. And I don't know, Parrotheads, I, I, I am endlessly fascinated by them. And the other thing that I was going to get to my um, notebook to look is in the movie, they mentioned something that I never really thought about with Parrotheads is how philanthropic they are and how hmm. they do a lot of charities and blood drives and things to help the community. And I was stunned by this fact, Mark, that, and I'm going to just say, it's like, they raised like parrot heads. They said twenty million dollars over a twenty year period because they amazing. They had like this community that I think they started like in the like late eighties, early nineties, and then they had like this fan mail sort of build in this fan club, so to speak. It was the idea to promote like these outdoor activities and being with nature and being active. And that was kind of like really the goal of Parrothead. It's not just about Jimmy Buffett's music, but it's like this like mm-hmm. lifestyle. It's more than just drinking or smoking pot or listen to music, but it's about actually connecting with yourself. And I was stunned by the fact that they raised like $20 million and mm-hmm. have helped so many people. So like people can make fun of them for all they want, but like they're doing good things for the world. Absolutely. And it was like when the Juggalos started taking stands against fascism and then these kind of bizarre fan bases really came out of the woodwork and exceeded uh, most people's very low expectations of them. So, yeah, I, I think that's uh, a, a wonderful thing. And it's very easy to write off the parrot heads. But there's, you know, uh, I was going to say still waters run deep. But there's nothing very still <laughs> um, about them. One of the other big Buffett philanthropic things he's done, uh, we're probably going to talk about Save the Manatees, but I was remembering as well his work for uh, Montserrat when uh, in the mid-90s, his prophecy of old came true and, and the volcano did in fact blow. And a bunch of artists who had recorded in Montserrat did a big concert in Albert Hall in London. And it was kind of poignant because nobody in London really knew who Jimmy Buffett was. Like they thought he was just this random opening act for the rest of the artists. And, and there were some marquee artists at this show because of George Martin's Air Studios in Montserrat. Like, like Elton John recorded, I guess that's why they call it the blues there. McCartney did albums there. Uh, they were all at the show, Sting, Clapton, Mark Knopfler, um, and, and Jimmy Buffett. And there was just kind of dead silence when Buffett took the stage and, and did A Pirate Looks at 40. Uh, so so it's telling me a few things because it suggests to me that Buffett is encapsulating a particularly American form of escapism, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of Hemingwayish dream of going to Key West or this very baby boomerish um, idealization of just going to the beach somewhere that's sunny, going to St. Somewhere, as Buffett put it in, in, in one of his songs, go to an island, we don't care which one. And escapism probably looks very different in the UK. It probably involves Blackpool or something like that. So there is something uniquely American about Buffett. Uh, unlike a lot of artists we've, we've talked about over the years, uh, something about him just doesn't really translate well um, outside of the Western Hemisphere. I think there's something with capitalism or something with, it could only be the idea of Margaritaville and like the Parrothead subculture. It feels like that can only be an American sort of fantasy. Like if that makes sense, it's so, because it has to do with money and currency, but also has to do with, you know, working this like eight, nine to five kind of job and kind of just like, ah, my life sucks. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I, I totally agree with that. There's so much more to that. 
And I will say, like in that documentary too, one of the things I really love about um, Jimmy Buffett is how loyal he is to his fans. Like they're loyal to him, but he's also very loyal to them. <laughs> and there's this absolutely heartbreaking story of this yeah. woman who got into, I guess, a car accident in the documentary, and she became a quadriplegic. And it's very tragic. And mm. Buffett heard about it because it was one of the people that was in the fan clubs. And he like dedicated concerts to her and he would send her videos because she used to go to all the concerts, couldn't go. And the parent heads, God bless them. They basically helped do all these charity drives in, I, I forgot which city it was offhand, but they helped raise enough money for her to get stem cells so she could put them wow. in her back so she has a more stable life. So it actually almost made me cry last night because I was just so Mm -hmm. touched by it because people just want to write off these people as like, oh, they wear flip-flops, they wear jerseys and shorts and they're they're dumb. And no, they're Mm -hmm. actually like trying to like help people. And it was just so touching to watch this woman honestly just say how much Jimmy Buffett meant to her. And then Jimmy Buffett would go visit her in the hospital multiple times. Oh, wow. And when she was able to go to one of his concerts, like she went on stage, I think it was just Oh, like it, it touched my heart so much. It was like not expected. That. It's true. And when you frame it like that, it really does remind me of a lot of elements of American society, like like the Shriners, for example, where on one hand, they're, they're wearing all these stupid hats and riding in these tiny cars, but they also do this amazing philanthropic work on the part and parcel of that, not, not as, you know, as opposed to that. So... Yeah. Um, this very close interweaving of the silly and the frivolous with the the necessary and the philanthropic. The, the, the two worlds are never too far apart from one another sometimes. Absolutely. It's just the Parrotheads, I think, deserve more of our attention and love, quite honestly. And if you're listening, mm-hmm. you're a Parrothead, we thank you. Because, you know, it's just if you contribute to any of those charities or organizations, that's just, oh, it's just so amazing. I was just so touched by that last night. I was It was like 11 mm-hmm. o'clock and I'm, wow, like this is really hit it more harder than I thought, quite honestly. And we we were going to talk a little bit about his philanthropy too, Buffett, um, especially see the Manatee Club. Which, yeah, Mark, what like uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? That's also another way that Buffett contributes to the world was his environmental causes that he he were near and dear to his heart. Yeah, and that's interesting because while Buffett did a bit of campaigning for Carter, generally he tries to avoid too much red letter brazen politicking with the exception of environmental activism and save the manatee club was one of the points where buffett really got his hands dirty and worked with uh, bob graham the uh, the uh, governor of florida throughout uh, much of the 90s and uh, they they did uh, some incredible things and some, they played a significant role in keeping the manatee population viable uh, on the coast of florida yeah it went international and yeah, it's just one of the things that like when I was doing research on him, I was not expecting Jimmy Buffett to start a nonprofit organization that helped conserve manatees. And yeah, it's just mm-hmm. this guy is just surprised to me at every turn. Let's go back to the music. We talked about artists that influenced mm-hmm. Jimmy Buffett, but who are some that he influenced? Do you have any, Mark, that you want to share with us? Sure. I mean, I sometimes feel like country music today kind of runs along two axes. And there's one axis that's the cultural grievance, try that in a small town, 
uh, Richmond, north of Richmond kind of world where there, there's a lot of anger and resentment kind of simmering beneath the surface and we're not being taken seriously by the rest of the country. But there's this more um, uh, lighthearted in some ways, but but often surprisingly deep axis of people reflecting on the good life and, and what it means. And Alan Jackson was part of that and Kenny Chesney was part of that. And this whole generation of country artists who had some mild Caribbean influences and maybe toned down the twang just a little bit and up to the, the Gulf Coast and the singer-songwriter a little bit um, to tell that story. And that kind of all blossomed, especially after uh, five o'clock somewhere, uh, of course. So and Zach Brown, you might put in that uh, category as well. So yeah, Buffett's stepchildren are very much country artists. And if he does get inducted by the hall one day, it's very likely that we'll see someone from that foothold do some kind of tribute performance for him, I'd imagine. Oh, I would definitely imagine. And also to add to that, I think what's really fascinating about Buffett is that he worked and collaborated with so many artists, but a lot of contemporary mm-hmm. artists. Alan Jackson, one of Jimmy Buffett's most well-known songs now is It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. And he worked with Martina McBride and you said Zach Brown and Caddy Chesney and Blake Sheldon. And there's so many contemporary musicians. And I love that when established artists work with more Mm -hmm. current artists, I think that just it's kind of like this wince, so to speak, where it's like, oh, like they're that they keep up with popular music trends Mm -hmm. and contemporary music, but also like that they're trying to help them out too, like especially if it's early in their career. And I think that that's something I really like about Buffett, the more I've known about him is that it's just, yeah, it's just this working with all these artists. And I think when you thought, when you said about the, if he ever gets into the rock hall, country artists are being more influenced by him than say rock and rollers. I would think like the Doobie Brothers is a band that got inducted recently that where you saw, Mm -hmm. I believe it was Luke Bryant that inducted them. And yeah. And a lot of like the people who talked in the video package, sans the Hall of Famers, I think they were almost all country artists. And I feel like that would kind of be a lot of the case. It's either going to be contemporaries of Buffett or it's going to be some of the people we mentioned. Yeah. And that's how I think in my head, if he were to get inducted, um, that's how it would go. Timothy B. Schmidt would give the speech and then the Zach Brown band or Luke Bryan or something would do a song or two and then just kind of brief, bring things full circle since uh, Buffett, as you may know, was the one who inducted the Eagles into the Hall of Fame uh, back in 97 or 98. Yes, he did. And uh that's absolutely true. And also I was thinking, because I was listening to it over the last few days, is he has a station on Sirius XM called Margaritaville. And yeah. I think what's fascinating about that channel is you hear his music, of course, like Jimmy Buffett, but you mm-hmm. also hear music that he liked and was influenced by. Also up and coming artists that either mm-hmm. take like this trop rock or whatever type of genre you want to call it, like Gulf and Western, and sort of put their spin on like either unknown artists or um relatively obscure act he would um have that channel and sort of use that platform to try to help other artists as well so it's almost like this unselfishness that really kind Mm -hmm. of is consistent with his career with working with musicians yeah you mentioned all the big ones that i would have also kind of listed as well and also i was thinking kenny chastain because the new shoes nation which is kind of like the more 21st century version of the uh parrot heads and Absolutely. So I think there's a there's a good case. And 
as we've seen in the last couple of years with some of the inductions. I mean, being influenced by country and influencing country artists as someone who is also a rock and roller, that's more impressive than just being some random 70s rock band that didn't really influence anybody and burned bright and then faded away. We can all think of examples of that. I won't name any names, but uh, but I'd rather see someone who did more, had a wider influence, cast a wider net with some country influences than a, than a straight up rock and roller who didn't really move the needle in any way. Yeah, I tend to agree on that. So Mark, we're going to get to the, I think, funnest part of this entire podcast, which is the mixtape question. So I asked you to create a mixtape, so to speak, six songs, any six songs that Mm -hmm. you want that could be hits, it could be album tracks. Like if you were to introduce someone to Jimmy Buffett and say like, this is his music in a nutshell, it's your playlist. What would you pick? Okay. I like the idea of the quadruple Bs from his box set. So I would start with four songs representing each of them. So I would put Margaritaville down for Beaches because it's a Jimmy Buffett playlist. You've got to have Margaritaville. This one's a guilty pleasure, uh, but I, I love Finns. That's a good song. I, I don't. It's I don't a good think song. It's... Yeah. I mean, for a solid year, I drove my wife crazy by finding some excuse to say Finns to the left, Finns to the right. If there was a Star, uh, Star Wars, you know, uh, Force Awakens coming out and everyone was dressed like that one stormtrooper, fins to the left, fins to the right, uh, just just finding the dumbest. Anyway, uh, I love guys for it. For ballads, Come Monday mm-hmm. is a phenomenal song. Um, and I know I'm going with some of his more famous ones, but it's it's just such a beautifully crafted song and, and rightly um, a hit. For boats, a lot of good boat songs. I'm always moved by one particular harbor uh, and also the eponymous track for one of his albums. So that gives me two more spots on this this Buffett buffet, this this theoretical mixtape. I love Buffett's songs about interesting people. I think that's one of his greatest strengths as a writer. So um, I would forego He Went to Paris and do a different Parisian song, Last Mango in Paris, as one of those iconic songs about Buffett telling you about this fascinating figure who's led this incredible life, who's in the twilight of his years. It's a great genre. He's mined that many times over, but I still think that's the best one in the genre. And I would I would go with, um, this is another uh, uh, slightly more obscure one. It's not on Songs You Know by Heart. Uh, it's a song called Manana, basically Buffett narrating a week in his life. And relating that back to how he writes his songs and draws from his experiences. And there's these wonderful little vignettes in there about friends running afoul of customs and the lights going out in St. Thomas on the Virgin Highlands and his stash is running low. It's just it's maybe the quintessential Jimmy Buffett song or the most Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett song, in my opinion. So Manana, I forget what album that's off of, but one of my favorites. Oh, those are some good choices, Mark. Do you mind if I share a few of my favorite Jimmy Buffett songs? I'd love to hear some of yours, yeah. Okay, so my favorite Jimmy Buffett song, I think, is Son of a Son of a Sailor. I just, I think that is one of the most beautifully composed and written songs that he has ever done. I think I played that, I kid you not, Mm -hmm. probably like 20 times in the last month or so. I just think it's just, it's such a hypnotic song. Wonderful. It's so catchy. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it, it it's amazing. I also think you would have to have a pirate looks at 40. 
Like it's just too sentimental of a song. And both of these are, of sure. course, they're part of the big eight that you would always mm-hmm. hear probably at any Buffett concert. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to go with some deeper tracks. I'm going to say Great Film Station Hold Up from A White Sport Coat is a fantastic country tune that I just, I think it's just such an underrated song that really showcases more of his countryside. Mm-hmm. I also love the song my head hurts, my feet stink, and I don't love Jesus. Because I just think that, that this is... That's um, a great title, isn't it? it yeah. It, it absolutely is. And I just love it. It starts with this Leon Russell-type piano style, and then it kind of goes into all these like country <laughs> cliches about him going to a bar. And I don't know. It's just there's <laughs> something about that song that's just so playful. And I just love the fact that it, it has this ridiculous, very straightforward title. I, I, I love it. Another one that I really like is from 2009. He had it from the album Buffett Hotel. It's called Nobody From Nowhere. I think that that is <laughs> a really fantastic song. I just think hmm. that it's just he didn't just stop in the 70s and 80s. He he kept putting out more and more work consistently. And he just has this great yeah. uh, output. And also, like even a song like Bama Breeze from 2006, like it's just one of those songs where you hear it and it's weird. Like we were mentioning some of the people that he influenced. It sounds like it could be right up there with any Kenny Chesney or Toby Keith or Alan Jackson song. It has that like contemporary mm-hmm. uh, country radio kind of style to it, but it's distinctly Buffett, like in terms of the lyrics and his delivery. And I just think that that I, I thought it was fantastic. And oh, oh, there's one more and I didn't write any notes on it, but I think this album from 92 somewhere over China is very underrated in his discography. T- I just, I doesn't get a lot of love, but there's a song called it's midnight and I'm not famous yet that I thought was also fantastic. Yes. Yes. I love that one too. There's so many others like, and we'd even like hit on some of the other ones, grapefruit or volcano. He's just such a wonderful artist that I think that, you know, at least we didn't say cheeseburger paradise. Cause that's, like not a good song i mean it's like it's fine but i i never you know it's just a song that i thought i liked more but i didn't over time was changes in latitude changes in attitude like, i used to really yeah. like that song and then mm-hmm. i think i like like 20 songs more than that now that's fair uh i mean it's it's sort of the centerpiece of the jimmy buffett philosophy which is i think it's why it's so highly regarded and yeah. particularly the line if we couldn't laugh we'd all go insane that's what his entire catalog is about you 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 look at the foibles of life and you try and resist the hard realities of the world coming for you. But yeah, I, I can kind of see your point too as to why it might wear a little thin sometimes. And I think it's because it's overplayed too. The bigger songs, like I feel like that one and even Margarita Phil, they're just way too overplayed when there's so many other treasures in the Buffett treasure chest, so to speak. But yeah, those are some fantastic songs, Mark. Oh, I'm excited. This this is like that. That's a rocking playlist, in my opinion. I would totally play that. Uh, so Jimmy Buffett, it's it's really weird. Like I was doing research on this, and he really didn't win a ton of awards in his lifetime or honors. He'd be nominated no. for like say like no, no. the Country Music Association awards, like CMAs, and be nominated for a lot of things. But he really never won a grammy even and then when he was nominated it was for it's up it's five o'clock somewhere it's not like that's kind of crazy to think like an artist who's mm-hmm. pr- as prolific and as admired by artists not critics critics never gave a shit about jimmy buffett they never gave him the time of day 
but like right. the industry themselves, like for someone who's a pretty well connected, beloved figure, he didn't get like a Grammy nomination until 2004, which I find so shocking. But it, I don't know, mm-hmm. really not too many awards for Jimmy Buff. No, not at all. And I mean, I can sort of see why the whole Grammy scene is kind of inherently opposed to a lot of the the genres that that Jimmy Buffett stands for. And you know what? I, I think Buffett's okay with not getting them. I mean, I I, I think those kind of accolades weren't really his thing. Um, award ceremonies weren't really his scene. Yeah. I think he'd be just as happy that those awards went to someone else. Honestly, I think he was a someone for the people. So I feel like he just, he said, I think mm-hmm. he was more nonchalant about it. Like, whatever. Speaking yeah. of award shows, we talked a little bit about this before, but Jimmy Buffett was first eligible for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. Never nominated, has been eligible for, oh gosh, over 25 years. Yeah, I'm just curious, Mark, Like, what do you think are his chances for nomination and perhaps an eventual induction? I put him down on my very early list of predictions, uh, which I posted on Facebook and nowhere else because I'm basically not on social media anymore. And I have no regrets in doing so. Uh, If it's not this year, I have a hard time seeing how it would happen in the future, although I guess it's possible. But I was surprised at the outpouring of support from all kinds of quarters when Buffett died. Uh, Paul McCartney did tributes to him. Elton John did tributes to him. Dave Matthews, all the country artists we've mentioned. There's a groundswell of uh, respect and love towards Jimmy Buffett that I wasn't fully aware existed until we lost him. And if you look at it from the bottom line, I mean, parrot heads are an untapped market for the Rock Hall. Uh, If we're looking at this from a purely cynical point of view, I mean, think of the thousands and thousands of aging parrot heads with spare income uh, who, who would, you know, pack up their RVs and head out to Cleveland to see um, a Jimmy Buffett exhibit or uh, to visit after his induction. I think it's just um, smart purely from a financial point of view to induct Jimmy Buffett. So all of this makes me think his chances have never been better. I just wish he could have been around to see it because I've been I've been advocating for Buffett for years when I yeah. first started putting out my list of Rock Hall prospects. He was on the list and very few other people had him on there. So I'm hopeful this will be the year where uh, he will get some accolades. Yeah. And I think the thing about Buffett is that here's the thing about the Rock Hall. They have the fan vote now that they've done for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt in my mind that I don't care who else is on that list. He would be number one. Yeah on the fan vote because would mm-hmm. go in masses. Like if people who follow the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame were mad about Dave Matthews band and their their fans, which by the way, we did an episode on Dave Matthews. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Dave Matthews. He's incredible. He's gonna be at the induction. He's probably gonna induct yeah. Willie Nelson, um, as he should. But uh anyway, if they want to get traction on their website, put him on a ballot and he'll probably get the most votes for the fan vote. And I think he would actually do well with his peers. And I think that a lot of people in the industry and a lot of people in the, um, like who are artists, I think would vote for the critics. They're only one part of the equation. And there's a lot of critically deride Mm -hmm. or panned artists that have gotten in, in the last decade or so. And I feel like with Buffett, it's one of those things where 
I feel like this is going to be really cynical of me to say, but the ticket sales for this induction have been very terrible in many ways. I got my tickets mm. um, for mm-hmm. a pre-sale and usually they're a very hard ticket to get. Mark can attest to this. You know, we're all like texting each other and we're like messaging mm-hmm. each other. We're like, did you get tickets and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I got tickets and there's still so many ticket sales out there. That's why they're having, no offense, Elton John was a given because of Bertie Toplin and George Michael get it in. He's going to induct or perform for one of those, yeah. if not both. And also Dave mm-hmm. Matthews going because they need to sell tickets. And these are artists that will move the needle, so to speak. And I feel like mm-hmm. Parrotheads would... This would be a very hard ticket to get just because so many people would go just because of Buffett, almost like they did for Rush or for Kiss or for Pearl Jam or for uh, even Def Leppard. That was a tough ticket to get because of these artists that just have these Mm -hmm. special relationships with their fans. And even if Jimmy Buffett's no longer with us, you know, they're going to put on a hell of a performance. They're going to have so many great moments to pay tribute to him. And I just think that as the Rock Hall moves more towards populism and more towards, like you said before, Mark, an embrace of country music, it's kind of like a lot of people are asking like, okay, after Dolly and after Willie, who is the next country artist that would be considered? And a lot of people go straight to the 90s and they'll think like Garth Brooks or Shania Twain. I would think if they go to the 70s, they would either go to like a Buffett or maybe like maybe if they want to do someone like Posthumous too, like a Loretta Lynn, maybe or someone of that caliber. But what say you, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Buffett is in some ways the next logical choice, partly because Parton and Nelson, he had a foot in both the rock and roll world and the country world. And for all the reasons we've talked about, uh, it, it makes financial sense. It's it's timely. I'm hopeful it'll happen this year. I've been disappointed before, but uh, I'm hopeful. I think I am too. Like I have really felt like this like groundswell over the last month has just been so uh, beautiful to watch because he has never really gotten that respect. Like he did, like you said before, he inducted the Eagles mm-hmm. into the Rock Roll Hall of Fame when they got inducted as soon as they were eligible for the 1988 uh, ceremony. And I feel like it's it's great to see that. But also, there's also someone that I think we need to mention that can also help him get a nomination, who has been an important figure in the last decade, is Irvin Azoff. Because Irvin Azoff has gotten so many of his clients Absolutely. inducted like Stevie Nicks, like uh, the Go-Go's, uh, the Doobie Brothers, Journey, Bon Jovi. Um, mm-hmm. has, I don't even know if there's anyone on this year's ballot that got in but you know who's an interesting name that azoff recently signed that is not in the rock roll fame but we've talked about score that should be in is share let's let's face it mark and i'm going to be really honest as much as we follow this they are running out of obvious no-brainer icons and legends they, they kind of are in a weird way like people who are just mm-hmm. like too big to fail kind of mentality i don't know i would bet good money mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. buffett would get in immediately i don't know why i just feel like it's just the instinct yeah and i feel like it's almost like i want to get the dominant committee just to like say like take your critical snobbery out for a minute and just think about how bob dylan lists him as one of his favorite songwriters the eagles have worked with him uh so many other artists and i feel like there's like even like james taylor wrote this beautiful beautiful letter to rolling stone about jimmy buffett i'm just gonna read it because like it touched me so much to read it. 
Um, mm-hmm. He said yeah, that about do. Jimmy Buffett, his joy mm-hmm. of being alive and being himself, it was a gift to be around him and it was delightful to witness that life. Jimmy didn't have any illusions about who he was and what he was doing. He made fun of himself and he made fun of the institution of celebrity. His eyes were always open and yet it was always celebratory and joyful. Sometimes melancholy, it's true, songs about compromise, tarnished dreams, stuff like that. But you can't think about the guy without smiling. To me, that's the beauty of music, is that when someone who makes all this great work has that much of an impact on you, and it's unforgettable, it's hard to deny that, in my opinion. And I think James Taylor said it more beautifully than like any one of the tributes that I read. And you're right, even Paul McCartney and Elton John and other people like that, it was really touching to witness, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Do you think that he would get inducted on his first try? I mean, it all depends on who else is on the ballot, I suppose. But yeah. um, in an average year, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident he would get in. I, I think there's enough. I can see a coalition that could get him in. I mean, the problem is probably going to be the the journalistic segment, as you say. But uh, the Rock Hall, if he was to be on the ballot, would definitely want him in. And the acts that they want to get in have a, a knack for getting in. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and it feels like people have been waiting decades to get in. Usually, it's almost like this uh, freshness mm-hmm. to the ballot. Like they like they're this untested thing that like oh you're new to the ballot, so they always have the advantage. I feel like any artist that has never been mm-hmm. up before, but has been either uh, snubbed or has been kind of just not proven yet. So I feel like to be on the ballot. But you're absolutely right too. That's another big thing is that I always think that when people ask me about it. And ask you about it. I always think it, I always say it always depends on who else is on the ballot. It's sometimes hard to think. And some people you think are going to be no brainers don't do well. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a crapshoot sometimes. And who do you think would induct Buffett into the Rock Hall if you had the guest mark or anyone you would like to see? Yeah, I think, I think Timothy B. Schmidt would be a great choice. I mean, um, he he's a gentleman. Uh, they they wrote songs together. It would connect him to the rock and roll milieu, um, and then just bring in the country guys for the musical tribute. I think that would be just a beautiful way uh, to bring him in the hall. Yeah, that would be a very interesting choice. I feel like it would be someone from country. Like, and I was thinking maybe like Alan Jackson mm-hmm. or Kenny Chesney, just because they had some of their biggest hits and relationships with Buffett but also it could be also a contemporary Buffett's too like I could see someone like James Taylor or Mm -hmm. um anyone like that and I'm trying to think like if there's any celebrities that are confirmed paired heads and I'm drawing a blank but I feel like there has to be people that just like love Jimmy Buffett and because like they've been kind of doing that a lot lately like Shirley Mm -hmm. Saron inducted Depeche Mode and Drew Barrymore inducted the go-go. So it's kind of not too far mm-hmm. off to think that a, a celebrity figure would also do that. Maybe Jimmy, well, maybe not Jimmy Carter, but maybe like, not Jimmy Carter, but I mean, I'll bet the rock hall wishes they had Jimmy Buffett's cell phone. This would make a, this would make this whole thing a lot easier. Is it Bill Clinton, the fan of Jimmy Buffett? Like, didn't like, didn't we mention that before? Maybe I, it could be Bill Clinton. That'd be kind of wild. I would love it. It could be Bill Clinton. I think that I mean I'm I'm a big fan of getting kind of political figures in the Rock Hall kind of talking. Like I, I would have loved it for Beto O'Rourke to be the guy to induct Willie Nelson, but that's that's not gonna happen. 
No, that's not. <laughs> That'd be fun, though, to consider at least. I feel like I wish I knew if there were any famous parrotheads offhand. If listeners, you're listening to this and you're like, oh, God, it's someone super famous that we should know of. It's uh, definitely uh, it's my fault. Um, those are some wonderful picks. Any final thoughts on Buffett? Um, I, I think I think this is going to be the year, but I, I sometimes shoot for the moon and I fall flat on my face with these predictions. But uh, and, and of course, the uh, the so-called death fairy doesn't always rear her head. We can all think of when a major figure dies and we think, oh, this person's definitely going to get nominated next year. And then it, it doesn't happen. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's possible that Sinead O'Connor may get the 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 death vote if such a thing exists uh, rather than Jimmy Buffett. I, I have no idea how it's going to play out. And there's certainly going to be critical pushback. I think like Joe Quizala has him on his list of the evil eight <laughs> or, or or the the eight acts he, he doesn't want to see get in the hall. So I think there will be a little bit of that kind of sentiment. But I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for this year. I, I am too. It does always work out like, say, Donna Summer and Lou Reed. There's a like a catalyst of mm-hmm. that, which is their death, sadly, that leads to their nomination or renomination, then induction. I'm hopeful though too. I would, I would, I would really love to see that. And also, I was going to ask really quick, Mark. I think Buffett should absolutely be in the Country Music Hall of Fame too. I think that you know, there's a really good case, and I never really hear about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. And I would love to see him also be strongly considered for for that honor as well. Yeah, okay. I think uh, Buffett's uh, a surefire win for the country hall of fame yeah and i feel like his foot has always sort of been more in that door than say rock and roll but like he is definitely in both pools so to speak but i feel like it's just one of those things he seems like such a no-brainer that he should come up at some Mm -hmm. point for the country music hall of fame but i nearly never hear his name come up so yeah i'd love to see what kind of accolades he gets in the next year or two because uh some of them have been a long time coming and uh, he should have gotten them while uh he was alive. But you know what? I mean, Jimmy Buffett, I can't think of a major rock and roll figure less likely to hold grudges than him. Uh, yeah. So I think he would all take this in in the good humor in which it's intended. So, yeah, hopefully this year. I hope I, I agree with that. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the mm-hmm. show. It was so wonderful to get to talk to you again and to definitely talk about one of your favorite artists. Yeah, this is great. I don't get to indulge the parrot head side of my personality very much. So this episode is is kind of a great way for me to let my freak flag fly. So Nick, thank you for bringing me back on here. I love being on your podcast. I love what you do. Um, And uh, in conclusion, uh, please buy my book and listen to my podcast. (laughs) What is the name of your bookmark for listeners who would want to purchase it? I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, If you happen to like religion and politics, which maybe you don't. Uh, it's my brother's keeper, George McGovern, and progressive Christianity, where I look at how the uh, 1972 presidential uh, election loser uh, ended up being kind of the godfather of the modern Christian left. And I also have a podcast called The Also Rans, uh, which is related to it, which looks at U.S. history through the perspective of people who lost the U.S. presidential election. So a lot of losing going on. <laughs> but yeah, check out Mark's book and also his podcast. It's uh, it's all really fantastic. And of course, you all can follow me on, I don't even call it X anymore, it's Twitter uh, or Instagram or Facebook. And we're on threads. And we're 
at Rock and Retropod and uh, give us a follow. And also, if you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, give us a review. It helps people find the podcast and rate us mm-hmm. hopefully five stars. If not, you know, we'll be very sad. Mark will be very sad. Um, and then I'll join the also Rands with the, the other losers. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> get it mark um you don't but, belong uh, on a podcast about losers nick I yes you. thank you all for listening to the show and we'll catch you all later